1: Hi everyone, it's Steph, Buildup's Executive Portfolio Liaison. This week on the Nonprofit Buildup, we are recasting part two of a two-part informative session led by Buildup's CEO and Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors, RPA, General Counsel, A. Nicole Campbell, and moderated by RPA's Senior Vice President and Corporate Secretary, Renee Carabee-White. This presentation was originally recorded as a webinar in February 2022. TCLF serves as outsourced general counsel to brave nonprofits and philanthropies, and RPA is one of our brave clients. You can jump back to part one of the conversation to learn more about values-based contracting for grantmakers, ensuring alignment, preserving the partnership, and protecting ownership. In this second part... Nick continues to provide guidance on value based contracting, addresses common concerns, discusses how to build trust throughout the contracting process, and explores the potential risks of using standard templates without customization. With that, here is the second part of Nick's session.
2: So, we're stepping into the who. And, you know, again, this is a part of the agreement we're very clear on. We know okay, we're entering into an agreement, we know who the parties are, we do have to ask, are they individuals or are they entities that can then impact the language that shows up in your template. And sometimes it should because, you know, you want certain protections from other entities that you may not require from individuals, and vice versa. And it's also important, like, are you actually engaging with a party? to the agreement. Sometimes organizations have DBAs, right? Doing business as names, and it may not actually be, or just a marketing term to describe all of the organizations within their ecosystem. And there's not an actual entity there. And so you want to make sure that when you are engaging with another organization, individual that you're actually engaging and putting the legal name of the party into the contract because when we start to think about okay well what happens if there's a breach what happens if something goes wrong it's harder to say i actually entered into the agreement with this legal entity when you have another party's name or an actual dba or not a real entity as the other party so you want to be very clear about who is actually entering into the agreement. And this is also on the grant maker side. We use DBAs sometimes, we use other entities for different purposes within the ecosystem. And just being clear and letting the grantee know, letting the partner that you're engaging know, this is the entity that we use for contracting, but it's part of this larger ecosystem that we have. Again, one sentence, two sentence, explanation. Why would you do that? Because this is part of relationship building, right? If they have been building a relationship with one entity and another shows up in the contracting, it's not like they're not going to engage in the contract, but you still want to make sure that they're clear as to why this party is showing up in the contract. So just being very clear on that. Also on who's doing what and who's performing the work or services, who, when you're talking Particularly in the context of a service agreement, being clear on who exactly should be performing that work, who will be reporting back to who within the organization, and making sure that you have the right points of contact in that space, right? So often what we see is you'll have, you know, any questions about this agreement, reach out to the CEO. That we know that's probably not going to happen, right? If the point of contact for a, a freelancer who's entered into a contract with a grant maker and if they have questions, they're not going to likely reach out to the CEO. They're going to reach out to their contact within the organization. So again, this is where you think about your template, but also think, okay, should this actually be the right point of contact? Because if you're doing things outside of what the agreement requires, even at the points of contact, you are not actually in compliance with your own agreement. So then we're moving into the what. And this is talking about you know the services or the work that's being done and the deliverables that are coming out of it. The first thing that we want to say is that it has to be for charitable purposes, right? So whatever you're doing, if you're making a grant, you're engaging a consultant, has to be for charitable purposes. So when you describe what's happening within the agreement you should be very clear about what you're doing and making sure that that work, that activity is in fact charitable. What we see is a lot of vague descriptions because the folks that are writing the description are very steeped in the work. They've seen this, they've had many conversations with the grantee, let's say, or with the consultant if they're engaging them through a service agreement. And both parties involved are very familiar with the work. So when they see something like, to support the capacity of the health campaign, everyone's on the same page, right? They have the scope of work in the back, the proposal, they have enough dialogue between them to say, we know exactly what you need. But others, anybody else coming into that might not know, right? It's not clear from its face that this is actually charitable. What we'd like to see instead is this example that we have as a statement of work or the purpose that's clear, which is to build the capacity of nonprofit coalition members strengthening public health systems throughout the rural South. On its face, it's charitable. On its face, it's describing very clearly what is happening, the purpose of the agreement. And that's the kind of language and clarity that we like to see when we're talking about services or the work being done.
3: So there's clarity of the purpose, and then there's clarity around the actual asks and obligations and expectations. That's exactly right. And we also have two questions around things that are appropriate or inappropriate in agreements. The first one, one of our participants said that they have seen NGOs demand unlimited indemnification from independent consultants, quote unquote, for any act. In terms of trust building, the commenter said that they find this abusive. What is your thought on that? So I think it's a really good call out. And
2: I like the fact that we're talking about indemnification, because again, it is a provision that I think many of us skip over or don't pay as much attention to. Yes. I think when you talk about indemnification, again, if you're looking at it in terms of relationship building, you're saying up until the contract, we're in this together, we're partners. We want to make sure that we're clear on who's doing what and expectations. And then you get to the agreement and it's one-sided, it's unilateral, as we say, right, for indemnification, and they being the consultant or the grantee is indemnifying you, and you have no indemnification responsibilities whatsoever. It doesn't align with the messaging that you have been sharing with that partner, right? So when we're talking about building trust and continuing to build that relationship, at that point, you can see a lot of, I don't want to say a lot, but it happens quite frequently where that's where negotiations or proposed engagements break down at the contracting phase right so you're all in agreement and you get to this legal templated contract and it's like well you don't know necessarily what you can negotiate, you just share the template, which is not reflective of your organizational values. It has this indemnification provision within it, and I would think it probably has others within it, if that is just one example of the standard language that they're using. And so I think like that's when you start to have harder conversations within that relationship. So. I think there's many ways to do indemnification. We'll talk about that in more detail. There's lots of different iterations of how you can indemnify someone or be indemnified. Again, we understand you are stewards of your charitable assets. So you have a responsibility as well to make sure that you are protecting those assets. So there is a good way to get to that point where you're both feeling, you're stepping into that relationship saying, we're going to be fair. All right? We're going to be fair. So I think that's the indemnification piece. I think, again, this is when it's a great time to revisit your templates, right? And look at what your indemnification language says, because sometimes it's just unnecessary. But again, it's a template that everyone has been using and no one has questioned.
3: So we have another one on the trust question. One of our participants has a commitment to engage vendors who come from communities that have experienced marginalization and violence, So they are considering offering a one pager to every vendor they engage that walks them through some of the basics of engaging in a relationship with them. And some of the things that would be included on that is use of pronouns, respect for people's gender, and racial identities. And the question is whether they can add that language to the contracts or whether there would be any issue with doing that.
2: So I really, really like this approach I think that the one pager is very helpful. The question is, would you gain anything else by adding it to the contract? The contract is an agreement, right? So if you're saying within the language, here's what we are agreeing to, and here's how we would like you to engage with others, engage with us, here's what we want you to do. So back to this contract template of, it's all about representations and warranties current state, future state. So what are you doing and what do we want you to do? So if you're asking for agreement, then yes, I would say put it into the contract because it's something that you want them to agree to or something that you're saying that you will agree to, right? So this is how I will engage with you. If it's any language like that, then I think adding it to the agreement would be added value. We just want to let you know that this contract is part of our relationship building. And as a result, we're trying to take away some of that legalese, we're trying to make sure that we are you know, showing up the way that we have shown up from the beginning of this relationship. Then I would say having this one pager is entirely appropriate. So all of that to say, if you want an agreement, then you would put it into the contract, but I don't think it lessens its value or its impact by keeping it as a separate one pager.
3: Yeah. So I suspect that many organizations over the past few years have been reevaluating and reconsidering their values. I know we are as an organization as well. And one of the biggest questions is how do we live our values? So I almost feel like having that be a part of the contract, including what actions will be taken as a result of those values could be pretty significant for relationships and mm-hmm. for alignment.
2: So when we're talking about the what, you know, again, we laid out, it has to be for a charitable purpose. And we'd also started to say, the reason for this is, and being clear about it, is to avoid project free, right? And this is important because one, you're making sure that what you have agreed to is actually what is happening. And then two, that you're being fair and just, right? You are actually paying people for their labor. We talk about that a lot in this sector. So if you are agreeing to do A, and then you're asking this person to do A, B, and C because you don't think B and C is that significant and you don't need to add it to the contract, now you're having that person do extra work and you're not compensating them for it, right? So think about this is the reason, again, back to values plus the legal fundamentals, the reason that we want the clarity, yes, for charitability, for tax purposes but we also want it because we're thinking about our own organizational values and the way we want to show up and having someone do extra work and not have it reflected or being compensated is not what our organizational values are supporting so we also talked about amendments at the very beginning and we said we want them to be written you remember at the start of the pandemic We had a lot of amendments happening for project support grants that were being converted to general support grants. And a lot of grantees we had conversations with said, you know, yeah, the grant is being converted and well, where's the amendment? Oh, it was over the phone. Right. And so then it took months after that for that conversion to happen, for the additional funds to come through, and they had grantee organizations just waiting. Right. Because what is your recourse? I had a conversation with a program officer who told me that this should happen. So this is when we're talking about even with amendments, and it's not about not trusting. It's about making sure that whatever you have agreed to is sitting in writing. And we all parties involved are clear on, OK, we've agreed to convert this grant, for example, and we're going to do it by this date. And just, again, having that clarity about the what and having that in writing, pulling out any exclusions things that should not be within the scope of work or the deliverables and being very clear, particularly when you would assume that those things would be in there, but saying, actually, no, this is pulled out. So we wanna make sure that all of those exclusions are sitting in the agreement as well. You wanna talk about whether specific deliverables will be provided. Again, we see this a lot where, you know, a report might be sitting in the written agreement, but then it's like, oh, can you also provide some email status updates or status updates via email? And so now you have additional things happening outside of the contract. So We want to be clear on what are the specific deliverables. And then finally, this is all laying out what are each party's responsibility, right? What are they committing to do? And so this part of this what is also saying should you actually be entering into a grant relationship or grant agreement with this organization, or should it actually be a service agreement? When you start to think about the deliverables, how often you're going to check in and what this relationship is looking like, think very carefully about, should this actually be a grant as a result, or should it be a contract? And this is the
3: space where those questions would come up. Great. So we have about 15 minutes to cover the when, where, how (laughs) much, and intellectual property.
2: Okay. So we'll highlight these just in the interest of time. And please feel free to continue asking questions. We can always follow up afterwards as well. So the when is very important. This is about trust. I think this is a space where we want to be very clear and realistic about deadlines. So when you're saying this has to be done by June 1st, think about like, Does it actually have to be done by that point? What capacity would your partner need to actually complete it? And so thinking about those things, bringing in your organizational values, and then saying very clearly in the agreement, here is the true deadline, right? We'd love it by June 1st, but actually we don't need it until July. So just being very realistic about that, so knowing the delivery dates, the term is just the beginning of it until it ends. And then termination. When can a party terminate before the term ends? Like under what circumstances is that allowed?
3: So would you recommend that parties build into an agreement at the outset a process for adjusting deadlines? Because sometimes with the different power dynamic, people agree to deadlines that they're not sure they can make, and it might end up being quite a bit of work to make those amendments. So is that something you'd recommend building in at the beginning?
2: Oh, yes, definitely. So I think like even putting it into the template and saying, hey, if these deadlines need to shift, Here's the process for shifting them so that you're not going through this elaborate process of, you know, getting both signatures and it has to be hard copy, you know, whatever requirements, but just letting someone know. Or if it's beyond this particular date, you don't have to do an amendment. You can say all of that within your template. And it makes sense when you look at why you're amending your agreements. If you're seeing that it's always because of deadlines. I think it's, one, having that internal conversation around just having realistic deadlines, but it's also that second conversation around, okay, well, how can we adjust for this so that we can, again, we're not causing administrative burden on either side, and we can say, like, look, this is how an amendment will work, okay? So where? It's very important to understand where the person will be delivering the services or performing the services. And that's because it has both tax implications in terms of if you're in a service agreement, you have someone working in the United States versus outside of the United States. The tax reporting that comes from that and the information that you need from that partner is very different based on where they are located. And it also has labor implications. So if you have, again, you've engaged a consultant via service agreement, and you have the person sitting in your office at a desk with a business card and a telephone, these things can then transform that relationship from consultant to employee. So it may have labor implications as well. And this is where, again, you see that conversation coming together of values and legal considerations, because usually you want the work to be done exactly where the issues are showing up or where you are problem solving alongside the communities that you're serving. That helps with program credibility It also makes sure that you're not having this top-down type of approach. So that means you might be working outside of the United States, and you also want to then think about what are the local laws that they have to comply with? When should you know about local law compliance? And your template can do those things and can pull all of that in, all of those warranties, right? Like what they can do in the future into that agreement so that you're not thinking about it. But being very clear about where the work is being
3: performed is very important. And I just want to call out that for global grant making, which will be covered in our third webinar. There are some very specific considerations. So if you haven't already signed up for that webinar, we can make sure to... Let everyone know about that one in the post-webinar email.
2: Okay, so we're talking how much. And again, this is about the fee or the award. And you might see this provision and say, oh, well, yeah, I know the amount. Here's how it's going to be paid. But here is, again, a really good place where values meets the legal considerations or just the practicalities of the situation. When you set the fee award, is it fair? Right? Is it actually compensating folks for the labor that they're performing? Are you giving them the flexible type of support that they need, right? If we're talking about a grant context? And how will payment work? Will it be flat fee by the day? All of these different questions come up because you're thinking of how to pay. What I've seen some organizations do is they think about, well, our finance team said that we can pay this way. And so this is how our template reads. This is how we pay out grants. And it happens in every single grant, same thing over and over again. And it might work maybe for um, certain grant makers who have very similar grantees doing very similar work. But when you're thinking about who's on the other side of that conversation, who's in that relationship with you and considering are you working with a small or micro business? Are you working with a community-based grassroots organization that might need the funds at different times? And so if you have a net 90 or net 120 payout a payment term, so you're not paying until it's you know, 120 days after the work is performed and the contract is for five months and you're dealing with a micro business, think about the impact that may have on that business waiting, you know, for eight months for payment. And you're then saying, well, part of our organizational values is economic inclusion and opportunity, right? So, particularly for small businesses. So, if you're saying that that's your organizational value, how is that then showing up in the way you're paying and how you're paying your partners?
3: And also, there's the issue of the right amount of ask for the amount given with respect to grant relationships, right? So, asking too much in terms of reporting based on the amount that you're awarding. So being very cognizant of that as a trusted partner.
2: Agreed. Agreed. I see this come up a lot. And again, we'll talk about a lot of these implications when we have the webinar you just shared, Renee, on international grant making. But when you're thinking about grant making in an international context, and you know there is some flexibility about requiring bank accounts when you're making grants to certain organizations, you want to consider, is this a kind of organization where getting a bank account will be administratively burdensome for them if we're awarding a $1,000 grant, right? Mm-hmm. So
3: definitely, I think it's something you have to keep in mind. So there is a question that's pretty specific around the risks for partners when you seek low costs via a long-term firm fixed price contract, then add termination clauses of exits by the funder for 30 or 60 days there's a note that this significantly alters the cost for work delivered, particularly for small organizations. So do you recommend t and M instead? So I think it depends,
2: and it probably is a longer conversation with the partner involved to understand how do they want to be paid. sometimes when you see a fixed rate, it's based on time and materials plus some other uh, factor that they've included. So if that's the case, I think raising the rate question is a, I think it's such a values-based approach because otherwise you would say, well, you know, we've got the lowest number here, let's go do it. But instead you're saying our organizational values are going to require us to have this conversation about how will this work? This doesn't seem market where you are actually substantially below what would it look like if we increase that fee because would that give you additional capacity to perform within the terms of the engagement so i think raising the question having the conversation is absolutely a values-based approach i would not suggest someone change the way that they're working if they believe it is working for them but i would raise the issue around if you are well below market because we're seeing lots of contracts come in and so you have a vantage point of saying well For this kind of work, we're paying, you know, this range and you are exponentially below that. I think that is absolutely something you raise and have a conversation about to make sure that it's fair
3: throughout the course of the relationship. So we have five minutes. We don't have any other questions right now. So we can hit the highlights of the rest of the presentation.
2: All right. So I'll hit the highlight with IP. So IP is really important. I'm sure this is the piece where consultants come back and ask questions. If it's in the service agreement context, grantees might be raising questions depending on your template. And so you can have deliverables or work product can be considered intellectual property. So you need to think about who will own who will have the license to use that property. Their default IP provisions within agreements, which are one in the grant agreement, usually have the grantee own the deliverable and the grant maker receives a license. This is subject to other interests that might be at play here, but that's really the default position. So if you are owning the IP that's coming out of grant agreements, revisit your template and really think about why you are doing that service agreements the consultant usually creates work made for hire and then the grant maker owns that there could be instances where you license and on the next slide we'll talk about the questions we can move to the next slide so these are the questions that then impact those default positions right so i'm not going to run through all of them here but these are the questions you want to ask yourself each and every time you enter into an engagement even if you have a template that you're working from, you should still ask yourself, should this actually fall into our templated language? And your template language should be flexible enough to accommodate different scenarios as well. But it's really important that you start from a position of, we want to be fair, We also recognize we're charitable stewards, but we are entering into a relationship with you as well. So default positions of we own everything, you own nothing may not actually work or be aligned with your values. And so here with the standard provisions, we actually talked a lot about indemnification, and we just wanted to call out these different bullets here because there's lots of ways you can do indemnification. It can be very simple, or it can be pages and pages long, right? It can be mutual where you're both indemnifying each other, and I don't see that as a bad position to take at all. And I would consider, well, why don't you want to indemnify, right? You can also put limits on indemnification. And my point here is that there's so many different ways to do this. That you want to make sure that you are reviewing your indemnification provisions and that they're appropriate for the engagement that's happening. What I'll flag about confidentiality is we need to make sure that it's practical, right? So, what I see a lot is everything is confidential. Every single thing that we talk about within this arrangement will be confidential. And so it will be marked as such. Or, you know, if you don't mark it as confidential, then we won't treat it that way. So, you have to think about how those requirements then play out and are they actually practical? And then dispute resolution, what happens if things don't go according to plan? Where will this dispute resolution take place is another really interesting conversation to have and being flexible on governing law, particularly when the law is in your default state of the organization that's funding the work. So there are two tips I wanted to point out here. And one we talked about before, which is the bottom tip, which is consider adding provisions that are reflective of your values into the contract, right? So if anti-bullying is very important to you, put it into your contract and require that whoever engages with you cannot maintain that kind of environment where they work. And don't rely on just the boilerplate. Make sure that you're digging in and make sure that you can make it reflective
3: of the relationship that you're building. That goes right back to some of the points raised earlier. Great. Mm -hmm. And now I think we have some do's and don'ts to wrap up with. Yes.
2: So to wrap it all up, definitely enter into written agreements, contracts that are reflective of the agreement that you have made verbally with each other or with other partners. Review your templates. If anything, once you leave here, if you don't have a template, this is a great opportunity to create one. And if you already have a template, an even better opportunity to think about how you can switch things up and change it to make sure that it's reflective of your organizational values. Be realistic about your expectations for yourself as well as other partners that you're engaging. Talk about your IP, make sure that the ownership and use are aligned with your organizational values and consider contracts as relationship builders. They are not just legal agreements that you sort of push on other folks to sign. They're part of your relationship building. Definitely don't use a one size fits all approach. And we've talked about that at length. Don't rely on verbal agreements or confirmations. If it's important enough to talk about, it's important enough to put in writing. Don't treat your consultants like employees or your grantees like consultants. Right. Be clear on how you're engaging each partner. And then finally, don't inadvertently strengthen an unhealthy power dynamic through your contract language or the way you negotiate that contract. This is part of your relationship building and your contract is just another piece of that relationship. And that's it. So thank you all so much.
1: And that completes this two-part series on value-based contracting for grantmakers, ensuring alignment, preserving the partnership, and protecting ownership. As we wrap up, if you are interested in partnering with a law firm that leverages a global network of experienced attorneys with decades of legal training and practical experience and focuses on social impact organizations to serve as an outsourced general counsel and thought partner, then schedule a discovery call with the Campbell Law Firm today. The Campbell Law Firm works with brave nonprofits, philanthropists, ultra high net worth individuals and movements offering high touch counsel to social impact entrepreneurs and organizations around the world. We would love to hear more about your brave mission to change the world.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Nonprofit Buildup. To access the show notes, additional resources, and information on how you can work with us, please visit our website at buildupadvisory.com. We invite you to listen again next week as we share another episode about scaling impact by building infrastructure and capacity in the nonprofit sector. Keep building bravely.